Welcome to the TBD Podcast. My name's Erica Berger, and I'm your host and convener. Life can be messy. On this show, we'll talk with our guests about how they pick through their messes and become more resilient. We'll also get pro tips for living from a diverse array of people, including artists, entrepreneurs, and people shaping our world. We hope you'll laugh. We hope you'll take some notes and that you'll leave thinking more deeply about your life and how you aim to live it. As our guests reflect deeply and vulnerably on their own journeys, we hope their stories will help you better explore yours. After all, shouldn't life be determined? This week, I talked to Ani Okazian. She's an educator and a community builder. She also experiments in the arts and culture. We talked about her journey from Armenia to LA, her passion for education, and why she embraces her jealousy. Ani lives in Los Angeles, California. She started her career working in the city's educational system. I met her at a light-filled co-working space on top of an old factory covered in orange and blue murals in LA's downtown arts district. First up, I wanted to know more about her unique name. So tell me a little bit about your name. How do people sometimes <laughs> pronounce it? So my full name, Ani Okasian, but when you look at it on paper, everybody says any occasion. And so my response is always, I'm always up for a good time. And uh, it's great. It's a great party. It's, I'm great at networking events. I'm also, it's helped me get a lot of job interviews. Which is Ani's great. great at connecting people in LA. She hasn't always lived here though. She was born in Armenia. And the story of how she got here to Southern California, it's incredible. I'm, I'm waiting for my Oprah interview because it's like an amazing story. I was born in Armenia when it was still under Soviet rule. Um, so I always say I, I was literally born in the city of Lenin. Uh, I'm like a little communist baby. I plan on running for office, so that's going to come back to haunt me, I'm sure, especially in this political climate. But... Um, Funny enough, what's interesting is there was a major earthquake, 7.8 earthquake. And the only reason I'm alive is my dad had a funny feeling that day. He's like, I, he couldn't explain it to this day. He has survivor's guilt and he couldn't explain it, but he came home and thank God he did because the earthquake hit and, um, he saved me, my brother who was supposed to go to preschool, but didn't because he had a stomach ache. Um, and everybody died in that preschool. He saved me, my brother, my grandparents, and five other people in the building. So this dramatic thing happened, right? Um, and the blessing in disguise was that the Soviet government could not um, deal with the state of emergency, so they let people leave. So we were. my father decided in the airport, do we go to L.A. or do we go to Sydney? That's Wait, so where we knew what people. What year was this? 1988. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So right before the wall fell. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, um, he, I always joke with him. I said, dad, you just had a major earthquake and you chose to go to Los Angeles after that. You know, it's like, I could have been in Sydney. Like I would have had a great accent. Um, so, so you were then here for 94, right? For Northridge? Yes. Right. Which my parents still think was a cruel joke. You know, oh. <laughs> they're like, this is nothing. It's fine. Um, so you know, coming here and I'm, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I grew up poor. I grew up a poor and I grew up as an immigrant and I grew up working up really hard. I mean, that's the reality of it. Um, and I love Los Angeles for that because my parents got here, um, and they were able to find work. They were able to find resources, you know, um, and now all the way for me coming in, getting the great education, uh, being a product of a good school district and having the resources now to be able to take care of them is like really exciting to me. Um, so I grew up really specifically like focused on education because that's what helped me the most. I, I'm, it's, 
I don't think it's cheesy. It's not cliche, but like education is the main tool to get out of poverty. Um, to the point where it's, you know, I went to the first of my family to go to a university, um, graduated, and then started working for the Los Angeles Board of Education because I really wanted to focus on policy and how do we set the policy to help all the schools, right? Los Angeles Unified School District has like, it's the second largest school district, had an operating budget of $7 billion when I was there. I worked for a board member um, who represented the Valley and was really just in the weeds when the recession hit. And it was um, and this massive. And 2008 recession. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I developed this this weird reputation as um, they would say, "Send the crazies to Ani," mm. right? And because <laughs> I was I was 21, like super eager, like a policy nerd, and really believed that we had to fix this. And every day we'd come into the head, and there were just camps, whether it's like parents, teachers, unions, like activists, because the school budgets were being cut, like. No, tomorrow. What people don't realize is that a school district, um, other than a parcel tax, they can't do anything to generate revenue. They don't generate revenue. You get a budget and you have to allocate it. Right. And that's the decisions you make. And I realized that there was like a baseline of civic um, just understanding of what the infrastructure was. And people were protesting. And I was like, this is my personal mission to just every person I'm talking to, I would get into the actual um, like mobs of people, you know, I'd hide my LAUSD badge right. and I would just try to talk to them, you know? Um, and they'd say, I can't please, you can't do this. You can't do that. And I would, I would, you know, just get as loud as them. You know, I realized really quickly that um, you have to empathize and you have to make them laugh. And if you do that, that's when they calm down and you can have like a logical conversation. But if someone's emotional and you're talking to them logically, it's not going to ever connect. So I would make a fool of myself just to get them to feel like I was a part of their group or understood their anger. Um, same page. Same yeah. page. And then they finally would listen to me. And I would spend a lot of time doing this. It was probably the most... I, I when you like imagine imagine twenty one year old Ani in the middle <laughs> of a very angry mob trying to talk to everybody, um, and I I got this like incredible energy from it. I I used to love to do that. That's the heart of it, and that's why I feel like I understood where the pulse of the problem was. Hmm. Um, and would you know, LAUSD is a giant building. It's it's a high rise there's 10,000 people that come into the building and not one person would go speak to anybody outside we were told not to and I said but I mean that's a wealth of information to understand what's not trickling down and what is uh so I never just saw Ada I always I like I like big bureaucratic systems I like um, working within them. I think bureaucracy is a good thing. I think it's a healthy thing. I think it's gotten a bad rap. Um, but I always say like any system that's been, um, you know, existed pre-internet is inefficient post-internet. So I would just mm. try to explain to people, it's like, Hey, there's that many employees because you actually needed people to move information right. around. And, um, I just think the models never quite, like fit a healthy sign of bureaucracy and red tape shows resistance to corruption as well. Right. You know what and I mean? Wisdom from learning best exactly, exactly. And learning lessons the hard way yeah. over the years. But yep. um, it sounds like there might have been some transparency challenges. Definitely. And then back to what you started off with, which was an education issue. Right. People didn't understand how the schools were funded or how right. the programs were funded. <clears throat> I remember when I went to USC between 2005 and 2009, I taught dance classes mm. at a bunch of the schools around the campus because all the arts funding had been cut. Right. And I didn't really know why 
And then I moved to New York, so I never really found out. But it sounds like this is all related. Totally related. That's been my through line. If you look at my whole career and the kind of the career arc, um, I realized really quickly it's like I really care about your local neighborhood working for you. You know what I mean? And uh, so this past election year was pretty tough on me because of the mm-hmm. fact that Democrats couldn't connect with middle America when our policies are most aligned to help them boggles my mind. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of a basic communication challenge. I think liberals have a PR issue. I think the Democratic Party has like a major PR issue with how the way that they're speaking about what they do and for who and for what, Mm -hmm. you know. So um, that's been, I think, the core thing that I'm very good at is finding the language to say what it is I'm actually trying to convey and make sure it resonates with the person because the first time you say it's not going to be correct until like I, you know, when you speak to someone and you say something and they're like the light bulb goes off, yeah. right? You can so, see it in there. Yeah. Face. Like I'm just, I believe in iteration. Like I'm going to keep trying to tell you the same thing until I figure out what works. To, and as long as you understand it, um, that's what makes me happy. And, and that's why mm-hmm. I ended up going into the classroom as well. Um, because I realized like, you know, before I can try to fix any system, I actually genuinely have to uh, live whatever it is. So when I started with the Los Angeles Board of Education, um, I left to go to grad school. So I went to D.C., I went to Georgetown, came back and started teaching at a university. So I teach interdisciplinary research and future studies around social problems, social phenomenons. Um, and I am like, was really, I'm going on my sixth year and uh, – I told my, my dean, I said, you know, I was, I was sitting there thinking, like, how do we make classes better? And I, I never thought the most important part is the, is the teacher. And so I can't help write policy if I don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, honestly, it was just like, um, <clears throat> it's really difficult. It's really difficult, and it's so rewarding, and I absolutely love it. I always tell my, my dean, I said, you don't even have to pay me to do this. I love it so much. I was like, you should never tell that to your boss. But I, the first time I was in the classroom, I realized really quickly that that's where I was supposed to be. Wow. Mm. I love that. I love what you just said about loving something that's really difficult. I think yeah. a lot of the times we um, try to uh, push away and avoid Uh, and avert kind of the challenges of our lives. Um, But I know personally that from struggle comes strength. Mm -hmm. And that you can also, it sounds like what your experience is, is that you're having fun. Oh, yeah. When you're in a difficult situation. That, you you nailed it. That's my personality in a nutshell. Um, I'm like, something blows up, Ani shows up, and... (laughs) (laughs) fixes it and then moves on. So I'm naturally, um, I gravitate towards these crisis situations. Maybe it was the fact that it was the, you know, my first earliest memory is the giant earthquake and we were okay. And I think when you experience something like that, and I think when you kind of, um, the stories I grew up with were of such resilience, right? It's like, I'm a descendant of genocide survivors who had an incredible story. It's like, you know, my great grandfather, um, lost everything. You know, and he he basically had to remarry after the genocide. So I'm a result of um, of that marriage, actually. So it's crazy to think about. Right. So it's all these like mega crisis situations. Um, So it doesn't really scare me. If anything, I think 
the crisis situation activate me a little bit more. Um, I also have a dark sense of humor. I think it's funny um, with certain things. And I I have like weird fantasies of like, you know, how would I, if I ever got like, um, you know, robbed at gunpoint, I wonder if I could talk them out of it. I wonder if I could talk them down. Like that's like a weird thing to think about. So mm. naturally like crisis situations are, are um, really interesting to me. If I did it all over again, I'd either be like an ER doctor or a war correspondent. Like somebody has to be in the eye of the storm. And um, I, I've spent a lot of time building like the temperament to be able to be in a leadership position like that because you can't fake it there. You can't fake it in that moment. Someone's either going to want that challenge or not. Right. Um, um, and I really like it really excites me. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you just mentioned, which is, you know, spending time cultivating this kind of um, temperament mm-hmm. for challenging situations or how have you kind of built your adult life? Like, are you a meditator? Are you a yogi? What is what's your everyday like? How do you get out of bed every morning? So I'm a metacognitive to me, it's like important to, um, I tell the story of myself to myself constantly and I edit it and, um, it's, it's simple. It, it, every year at the end of every year, what I do is like, I'm going on my 10th year of doing a very deep audit of myself. I, it's two weeks. There's, there's no way around this. There's, it's two weeks and at the end of the year. So I always like the holiday lull. It's a good time. I'm not, I'm not much into the holidays, but I always like that um, time frame. So I look at the year that just passed. And what I do is I look at every role I play. So Ani is a managing director. Ani is a professor. Ani is a consult. Ani is a, you know, a daughter, a girlfriend, and, you know, just go down the list. And what I do, the first part of it is I just say, you know, what was the high point? What was the low point? If I could just, you know, and just those are my prompts and just write. That's all you have to do. Just write. You got to get it all out, get it all out. Um, once you do that and you really understand like, what was that last year like? And then I take a, a look at, and this is, I've had a few friends do this exercise and people get really uncomfortable doing it. And I find it funny. Um, I, I examine my jealousy, right? So what I do is take a look at everyone in my life, go through your Facebook feed, find people and just really think about what makes you jealous. What are you jealous of? What are you envious of? And make a list. Just go through and make a list. Like just deal with that discomfort for a minute and go through and you be like, you know, I'm really jealous of that one friend who always gets to take that vacation. I'm jealous of this other friend who just had, you know, another promotion. I'm jealous of this friend because, uh, you know, and I think I do that and I allow myself to go there and I don't ever censor myself. I think we've been taught to push that feeling, just stuff it down. And it's, it's awful. I think jealousy is the most efficient uh, emotion. It tells you what your insecurities are and what your aspirations are. Why aren't we using that? It's data rich. Like, so that's what I do. I think what you just said strikes me as so different than what other people read jealousy as, because I know I personally read jealousy as as something that is coming from societal constructs Mm. that I'm somehow buying into that I shouldn't be buying into, but looking at it as something that when you dive deep is actually indicative of your aspirations. Yeah. Is, is a really powerful way of reframing what jealousy is instead of calling it the green monster. Mm -hmm. It's multifaceted. It's not all negative. But if you think about like 
literally industries are, are built on making you have FOMO, right? And then we're taught like, don't feel jealous ever because you should have you should have another outlet to get rid of that, right? Like just, you know, do something, buy something, right? And if you, what's so great is if you don't censor yourself and you just make a list and you look at it again the next day, you will see a giant theme. Yep. And so what happens is people look at it incident at a time. And if you do that, then it's easy. Oh, I shouldn't think that. I shouldn't want that. And I'm happy for them. Why am I even thinking this? But if you um, really, if I have those moments, I'll just capture it. Just write it down and that's okay. So um, I think we were already censored so much. So I always just allow myself to have those moments where I'm brutally honest and say exactly what it is I want or don't want, you know. Um, and then when I take a look at it the next day, once you do that process and you write all that out, I look at the, what the themes are. That becomes my goal. Those are the goals, right? So if nine things out of my list were about someone having disposable income to take a trip, I'm like, okay, so looks like a goal of mine is saving some money so I could take a little trip. I need a vacation. Simple. That seems so obvious. I know. <laughs> and so that way I have markers of what I'm trying to do, um, what I'm trying to do for the next year. And when I take a look at everything, um, then I put a theme for the year. And that way I know it's like, it's like my, um, anchoring point for the things I do. Cause I know it's like rooted in the goals. So for me, uh, this year, uh, the theme was cash flow. And the reason it was that it was about like making sure I had, I was putting energy out. It was coming back in and I had enough reserve to do the next thing. Um, and it was very important once I took a look at everything, uh, cause I get excited, I get excited about ideas and I do too much sometimes. And I just am being much more cognizant of where my value goes and who gets it and how, what do I want it in return? Um, so that was my theme for this year. And when, when you, when you have moments that come across, then, um, you know, I kind of, I think back to the word of the year, um, and then it helps me make a better decision in that scenario. But you have to have an internal like guiding post. I'm a believer of that. I read like a long time ago about the locus of control. So the people have an internal, you either have an internal one, meaning you understand that you're the one making uh, your destiny or an external one where things happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, well, you know, how do you build that intuition to have the internal locus of control. Um, so I think that's why I feel so calm in crisis situations because I know how to do that. I love that. I want to look more into that. A big question I have after hearing you talk about this system and this process is have you identified a theme before and then spent the next year um, going on trips or you know, um, changing the way you spend or the way you make money? And, and have you then realized that actually you weren't that jealous of that or that wasn't that satisfying or has it always felt satisfying to you to make that change and, and just see that you can actually even do it? It's satisfying because, you know, I had a plan and I stuck to it, but not sometimes you do something and you're like, oh, okay, it was actually, I'm good now. That's right. fine. Right. <laughs> you know? And that's okay. And that's, that's better. That's even better. When you find out what you don't like, that's also useful information. You know, so even if I have an inkling, just an inkling that I might like something, I'll throw myself and be like, okay, great. Let's try this. Maybe there's a talk here. Let me read this. Let me do this. Let me, and and then I realize, oh no, actually that's not 
it. So I have like a really nuanced, nuanced idea of exactly what I'm interested in. And a lot of people don't. Um, and it's odd. They're like, I'm interested in education. What part I'm interested in, you know, yoga. Okay. What part, you know, so I, I think it, I've spent a lot of time chiseling away at the things that are interesting. So that's why I say metacognitive because you, you try it and then you realize actually that wasn't it. And then you have to try something else and you keep going and you keep going. But, uh, yeah, iteration is key. key And the only way that you can live a life like that is by getting okay with spending time doing things that don't work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have, at least in Western society today. Hey, I just spent 10,000 hours getting good at something. You know, I'm making a joke about Malcolm Gladwell, (laughs) but I just spent a significant portion of my time learning how to knit and it turns out I don't care. Yep. Right. And, and I fear that that creates a cycle of, um, just not really trying anymore. I know a lot of people and I've even gone through these cycles myself where it's easy to fall into habits that you already have and not try new things because maybe I tried something new recently and it didn't work out or I wasn't that good at Mm -hmm. it or I wasted a lot of money on it or, and, and my big question to you is, you know, how do we create a world in a society where um, people feel more comfortable trying things and not knowing whether or not they're going to love them or be good at them? To you know, it's it's a fantastic question. This is why I love conversations with you. Uh, funny thing, running Impact Hub Los Angeles, everybody always wants a hackathon for a problem, right? Hmm. And I'm always like, no you're not going to solve this and that's okay. The, the, my biggest thing that I'm trying to do and being the gap between the bureaucrats I used to work with who are trying to fix the policy that takes like 30 years to fix. And then the, the millennials who want to help is really just saying you need to be okay with feeling uncomfortable about this problem. And, uh, that's what I'm just trying to create that patience or just sitting there and like, I want, I want you to come to a panel. I want you to understand why homelessness is a big problem, why the drought is a huge issue, why climate change is going to, you know, (laughs) make everything really difficult. And I want you to leave uneasy. Right. So people are always like, I want, I want to do something. Let's, you know, create an initiative, a coalition that this and that. And it's like, no, I really just want you to leave understanding that this problem is huge. So um, there's no way around it. Nobody can feel uncomfortable at all. It blows me away. And like 90% of the world lives in extreme discomfort. And I really think, um, you know, I'm a millennial myself. I'm on the tail end of millennial, but still I'm a millennial. And I'm looking at everybody. I'm like, guys, come on. You know, it's okay. We're living, we have the most resources we've ever had and we have the most information we've ever had. Um, and it's a lot of things are on demand. I understand that. I really, really do. But we also, the resiliency for some of the challenges we're facing is not there. And that's my biggest concern. So I think like my personal kind of um, mission is like helping people embrace the discomfort of not knowing what their next step is of not knowing how they could solve a problem, not knowing, like I tell people sometimes like you probably won't have an impact on this and that's fine. You know? So it's, I have a really like Zen approach to it. Um, but a lot of people's like, I'm, I'm worried because they, if they can't see that immediate release, they don't want to try. Um, and we're going to pay for it to be quite frank. Like that's the thing. So 
everybody's on the, on their own personal journey. I just try to be vocal about mine and, um, and I'm constantly putting myself in, in situations that are uncomfortable. Like, you know what, if you're not feeling uncomfortable on a, you know, at least a weekly basis, you're kind of stagnant. And I would just refuse like with a passion, refuse to do that. (laughs) Ani isn't stagnant. In fact, she just signed up for improv and stand-up classes. Not because she wants to be an actor or a comedian. Ani just needed to be uneasy. She wanted out of her comfort zone. Whether it's an earthquake in Armenia, policy debates in LA's school district, her jealousy of others, or even improv, Ani embraces crises of all kinds, over and over and over again. And she continues to grow. Thanks to Ani for being here with us. This has been a production of TBD, to be determined. Check us out at livetbd.com. That's live to be determined. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.